Uh, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and open them to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. This evening, we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation and all the events that are going to take place at the second coming of Christ. And I want to remind you that when we uh, use that terminology, the second coming of Christ, that we're not just talking about one event that takes place in the end times, which would be when Jesus comes back to rapture his people. But the term second coming refers to all of the events that occur when Jesus comes back. And there are many that are going to take place. Uh, The second coming of Christ includes the rapture, includes the tribulation period, it includes the judgment seat of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, it includes the great white throne judgment where all the lost will be judged. All of those events are comprehended in the terminology, the second coming of Christ. Right now, we're dealing with the first phase of Christ's second coming, and this is the part where Jesus comes in the air, he raises all of the dead that are redeemed, and he calls all of those who are living and believers in him home to, be, uh, to go home with him. But it also includes this period of time that we call the tribulation, and that's the part that we're studying right now. In chapter 6, uh, which has been a few weeks since we were there, and and uh, actually it's been two or three weeks, three weeks I guess it's been since we've actually had a time to uh, study in Revelation. I just want to remind you that we were talking about the scroll of redemption that Jesus takes out of the hand of his Father. And on this scroll there are seven seals, and each of those seals corresponds to a particular judgment that will take place upon the earth. Each of the seals is opened in order, The first seal is opened, and under that seal is when the Antichrist is revealed. The Antichrist comes and reigns in power and authority upon the earth. The entire world falls underneath his control. Then the second seal is opened, and there comes military judgment upon the world. The third seal brings economic judgment. A fourth seal is opened, and that brings judgment upon the health of men. Then the fifth seal is opened, and that's what we call a religious judgment. And that's when all of the martyrs cry out for vengeance for those who oppress them. Then we come to the sixth seal, and that brings a great wave of natural disasters upon the earth. The entire earth is involved in all these natural disasters. And those seals, all of these seals, bring an unprecedented calamity upon the earth. There's worldwide death that comes by famine by disease, by wild animals, by war, by earthquakes, volcanoes. Death comes in just about every way imaginable. The opening of those six seals takes place in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And that is a terrible time that's really beyond belief. And so, so far we've seen six seals that are opened and we have one more seal to go. But after the opening of the sixth seal, we came to an interlude in the book of Revelation. That's in chapter 7. It's what we call a parenthetical part of uh, Revelation because the narrative is not advanced. And there, there's just some explanation that's given about some things that will take place. And in chapter 7, we learned about two different types of tribulation saints. The first ones are the preserved saints. These are 144,000 Jews that are called out by God, saved by God, a special seal It's placed upon them so that they won't be killed during the time of tribulation. And these Jews, 12,000 who come from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, become mighty witnesses over the entire world of the gospel of Christ. And under their witness, there are millions of people that are saved, both Jews and Gentiles. 
That brings us to another group of saved people that we see in that seventh chapter, and these are people who are killed during the tribulation time. These are martyred saints. They haven't been preserved from death, but they will die. Most of them probably killed by the Antichrist and his followers, and then there may be some of them that are killed because of the great calamities that come upon the earth. But chapter 7 is that parenthetical chapter, and things are sort of put on hold as those kinds of things are explained. But then we come to the opening of the seventh seal, and that's where we are tonight. And I've titled the message tonight, Reclamation Resumed. And that's simply because we had that parenthetical place where things stopped, but now the action starts once again. And so what happens under the opening of these seals is that God is lifting the curse from the world. He is reclaiming it. He's taking back the forfeited inheritance. And this seventh seal uh, really ends the reclamation upon the world. So tonight we uh, start, resumes the reclamation, I should say, and, and ends the time of tribulation and also the time coming up to the millennial reign of Christ. Now tonight we're going to start with chapter 8 and discussion of the seventh seal. So if you'd stand with me, please, we'll just get a start in this. Revelation chapter 8, verse number 1. And we'll begin reading there. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. There was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come to you tonight and we're so thankful to be back here in the pulpit preaching your word. I ask you, Lord, that you would give us understanding of what we read and, Lord, may we see a terrible time is coming, but you have given us hope through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room tonight knows you as Savior. A blessing the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One thing that you surely can't miss as you go through the book of Revelation is the prominence of the number seven. There's seven spirits, seven stars, seven candlesticks, there's seven lamps, there's seven horns, there's seven eyes, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven thunders, seven thousand men, seven vials. And here we come to the opening of a seventh seal. And what we find here is a very unusual scene. I want to begin tonight with this, and that is the silence in heaven. Verse number one says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Perhaps you haven't thought about this, but silence in heaven is not normal. If you plan to go to heaven for peace and quiet, you're only going to get half of that. You'll get the peace, but you're not going to get the quiet. In chapter 4, we saw that there were angels and there were elders that fell down before the throne and they gave honor to the Lamb that sat on the throne. In chapter 5, there was that vast multitude. We read that this morning in our scripture reading where there were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands who were there before the throne of God singing his praises. In chapter 6, we find that there are people, the souls under the altar of God, and there they cry out with a loud voice of vengeance against those who have oppressed them. 
In chapter 7, there's millions of Gentiles that also cry out with a loud voice. And so throughout all of eternity, heaven will continue to be a place where there's much noise. I'm not talking about chaotic noise, of course. I'm speaking of much noise because there forever people are going to sing the praises of God. But we come to chapter 8, and this is perhaps the only time that we ever find that there's silence in heaven. Some have said that this is a foundation for the doctrine that there will be no women in heaven. Thirty minutes is way too long for a woman to keep silent. So you've heard it said silence is golden, and probably that was written by man. And the meaning of that is that there are times when it's just better that you don't say anything. Silence may be golden, but there are also times when silence can bring a very eerie feeling. Uh, It's kind of that way on Sunday mornings when that we had that time period between the opening singing and when I come in here for the forum class, and there's this really strange silence that we have here, and I don't know what that's all about. I prefer to think that that's reverence for me, and my, my, my subjects know that it's not polite to speak until the potentate has stood at the podium and granted permission to do that. But John writes here, there was silence in heaven. So six seals have been opened, then Jesus opens this seventh seal, and suddenly there comes this great subdued hush over all of heaven. Not a noise is made, there is no rustling there, there's not a breath, there's no whispering, just a very eerie silence, a silence that's so thick that it can be felt. What is that silence? What's taking place? Well, I think, first of all, that it's a time of anticipation. Six seals have been opened, and... These six seals have brought an awful judgment upon the earth, but it really hasn't ended God's plan of reclamation. There's that seventh seal that's yet to be opened, and what comes under that seventh seal is far worse than anything that we've seen before. So all of the creatures in heaven become subdued. They're silent. They're hushed as they contemplate in awe what it must be that the Lamb of God is about to do next. What is going to come under that seventh judgment? I think that it's a silence of reverence for whatever the king has decided. It must be just. It must be the right thing to do because in this, God is going to bring about that final reclamation of the earth. This is going to be the final victory for the Lamb. All enemies will be subdued and put under his feet. And so this is the vengeance of Christ and the vengeance of his people that have been so long under the evil of this world and under the oppression of Satan. And when I think of this silence, I I think it's uh, sometimes about the silence that we have at the Lord's Supper. You know, when we take the Lord's Supper, there's a great silence that comes to this auditorium as we, in reverence, remember Christ's death for us. And it seems like just to hear a, a child out in the hall or hear a footstep from some other place in the auditorium, that just seems to be completely out of place. So here is a silence of anticipation, and this is waiting to see what will happen. And it's amazing here that God himself even stops. God pauses. He doesn't say anything. He unleashes a wave of judgments like has never come before. And so even God stops here, and everyone waits for the action to happen. A second thing that I would think we see about this is that it's a time of transition. Three and a half years of tribulation are past. During those years, God has allowed a witness to the world. God has graciously allowed that men and women may receive him. Now, I've told you before that I believe that these are people that haven't heard the gospel before Jesus comes again. 
And God would be perfectly just if he were to destroy the entire world right then. If he didn't allow another person to repent or come to him, uh, God would be just in doing that. But what God has done, he's provided a time of grace. He's allowed people to repent of their sins and come in faith to him. He gave them 144,000 witnesses, and they came and proclaimed the truth of the gospel. So by the time that that period is over, there's no place in the entire world that is untouched with the gospel of Christ. So the world has seen the calamities, even the remotest parts of the world, the heathens that didn't know anything about God at all. They've all experienced these six seals. God still has some of his elect that are in the world, and so he gives them more space for repentance. Now there comes this time of transition. What that tells us is that the day of grace is running out. God is going to uh, transition from grace to ultimate judgment. And when this seal is finished, when everything is stopped here, when this is all done, then the very last person, the last person of God's elect, the very last person who will ever receive Jesus Christ as their Savior has come in. And God will permit no more repentance. God will grant no more repentance. He will give no more faith. There will not be another person who will be saved. God will shut it all up. They will not believe no matter how bad it gets, no matter what they see God doing, no matter what the calamities are, how evil that comes upon the world, how awful that it will be. These people will still grit their teeth against God and they will not bow to him. They will not repent of their sins. And so what God must do then is he puts his hand on the back of their necks and he forces them to bow their knees. Well, no wonder heaven is silent. I mean, this is a side of the Lamb that wasn't seen in the first advent of Christ. The first time that Jesus came, he came with mercy. He came with compassion. Jesus came as a servant of men. The Bible tells that in many different places of Scripture. He came uh, as, a, as a sacrifice for our sins. Now it's been almost 2,000 years since Christ came, and I don't know how long it's going to be until he comes again. Some claim they do know, some are predicting it, but no one knows when Jesus will come back. But he's given time for people to repent of their sins, and folks, time is running out. And so there's this silence that comes over heaven as all this is contemplated at the opening of this seventh seal. But then it starts. The seventh seal is different from what we've seen before. This is a very multifaceted seal. Lots of different things will happen under this. Multiple dimensions. We'll talk about it for the next several weeks as many, many different things take place. Next, I want to show you from the Scriptures the seven angels with seven trumpets. Verse number 2, it says, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, notice there in verse number 2, it says, And I saw thee seven angels. And I'm going to call your attention to the article, thee, before the word angels. We haven't seen these angels before. They're marked off by this definite article, thee, because these angels are different. Well, how are they different? Well, first, they're, they're special angels in the presence of God. The next part of that verse says, they stood before God. And in the Greek language, that phrase means that they are in the presence of God. And the idea that's portrayed there is that these are special angels of the presence of God. In the Scriptures, we see in several different places that there is a ranking system of angels. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw seraphim and cherubim, and that's part of the ranking system of the angels. 
We read another place in Scripture about an archangel. That's Michael, the archangel. And some people believe that Gabriel is also an archangel, although the Bible doesn't tell us that. We see other places where there are principalities and powers, and that is all part of the rankings of angels. Well, these angels that are in the presence of God, these are very special angels that are there for a specific purpose, and these are ones that are given these trumpets to sound out the judgments of God. So these are angels in the presence of God, but also they're special angels for the preparation of the people of God. Well, J. Vernon McGee has, a, has an interesting perspective on this. He mentions the sounding of these trumpets and how that Israel when they were on their way to the promised land, that they were called out by companies by the sound of trumpets. Israel was divided into four companies of three tribes each. And they would camp on the different sides of the tabernacle when the tabernacle was set up. So you'd have three tribes that were on the east, three tribes on the west, three tribes on the south, and three tribes on the north. In addition to that, there was the tribe of Levi, and there were three companies of the Levites And they had special responsibilities for transporting certain parts of the tabernacle. Well, when it was time for them to move the tabernacle, the trumpets would begin to sound. So first of all, there would be the sounding of four trumpets. Each of those companies of three tribes each would uh, begin to get up and they would move and then begin to march towards the promised land. Then there was a sound of three more trumpets and that's when the Levites began to march and they started carrying all the different articles of the tabernacle. And so all in all, you had seven trumpets that sounded. There were seven blasts of the trumpet as they began to march towards Canaan. Well, when these angels sound the trumpet, this is a sign that the millennial kingdom of Christ is coming means that Israel is going to be restored. Their land is going to be given back to them. And God, Jesus Christ himself, is going to come and rule and reign on this earth from Jerusalem. He'll set up a kingdom there for 1,000 years. And so in this perspective, we see that the seven angels are blowing these trumpets to prepare the people of God. The time is coming for that kingdom to be set up. The judgments of God are poured out. And the seventh seal is that preparation to subdue the entire world under the kingship of Christ, the authority of his kingdom. Now, thirdly, we see at the opening of this seal, the smoke of incense. Verse number three. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. On different occasions in our study of Revelation, I've told you that to understand this better, you need to have a background in the Old Testament. And that study that we had of the tabernacle a few years ago is just really invaluable to understanding scriptures like these that we read in the book of Revelation. When Moses was given the plan for the tabernacle, he was told to make all of the items in a very specific way. These things were to be placed in the tabernacle exactly as God said they were to be put. In the book of Hebrews, we find there that it tells us that all the tabernacle furnishings were placed in an order that was after a pattern of things that are in heaven. So there were altars that were made. There was a candelabra that was made. There was an ark. There is an ark in heaven. And so there was an ark of the covenant that was made that was represented. But one of the altars 
there were more there was more than one altar there's an altar a brazen altar and there's also an altar of incense and the altar of incense was inside of the tabernacle and it stood right next to the entrance of the holy of holies and there the priest would bring incense and he would burn it on that altar now i have for you here one of the pictures that we use in our tabernacle study And you'll see in this picture that the priest is putting blood on the horns of this altar. That's the blood of the sacrifice. He came and he placed that blood on the horns of this altar. Then the second picture that we have is the priest entering into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And he would take that altar of incense or that uh, incense from off the altar and he would take it, he would wave it there in the Holy of Holies. Now the Jews today have made an altar of incense that they planned to put into the tabernacle or temple rather the new temple when they rebuild it when they hope to rebuild it so they're already preparing some of these furnishings but let's look at some of the things regarding this altar first of all is the priest of the altar now the priest would go into the tabernacle or the temple on the day of atonement and he would put that blood of the sacrifice on the horns of that altar Twice each day throughout the year at the morning and the evening, the priest would go in and he would burn incense on the altar as the people were waiting outside and they prayed. And so this incense that was burned, this was a picture where it represented the prayers of God's people. Now in our text verse, it says there is an angel that takes the golden censer and he offers incense on this altar which is before the throne of God. I suppose that one of the most debated parts of the book of Revelation is who is this angel? How do you identify this angel? What does he represent? I mean, who exactly is he? And I'll have to tell you, I've read many, many different people on the subject and no one really knows. This is one of those things in the book of Revelation that it's simply speculation on our part to try to figure out who it is. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't show us in any other place of Scripture where there's ever an angel that, alters, that offers any kind of a sacrifice. And so it's really a mystery. It's puzzling as to how all that fits in uh, to uh, the types and figures of Scripture. So I don't think it's necessarily important for us to try to figure out who this is since the Bible doesn't tell us. But the thing that is important here is that this incense represents the prayers of all of the people of God. Now, there's one comment that I read that I thought was very good, and that is that one commentator said that not one of the prayers of God's people is ever forgotten. Sometimes we don't see the immediate results of our prayer. Sometimes God doesn't answer a prayer in the way that we like, but the prayers of God's people are never forgotten. God, the prayers of God's people are never cast out on a heap as if they don't matter. The censor here represents the prayers of the saints. All of these prayers are collected and they come up before God. And the second thing that we note about this altar is the position of the altar. The altar is before the throne of God. Now in the tabernacle, that altar, as we showed you in the picture, stood right before the entrance into the Holy of Holies. It was right there at that curtain, right at the entrance. And behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark of the Covenant, there was a mercy seat And that mercy seat was a representation of the throne of God. There were angels that stood over the mercy seat and they looked down on that mercy seat. And as they did, they stand there in amazement at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was made for our sins. The priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And those angels standing uh, uh, symbolized over that mercy seat is a picture of the angels in the presence of God. 
So here is this altar that we're reading here. It's right before the throne of God in heaven. It's positioned just as God showed it would be in the representation of the tabernacle. And so it holds a very special place of prominence in the presence of God. And what that is, it's just further proof to us how important that prayer is to our lives, how it is to our worship. It's integral to our worship. It's very important for our continued fellowship with God. That leads me to a third observation, and that's the power of the altar. I showed you those horns just a moment ago. Horns in the Bible are symbols of power. We'll see that through the book of Revelation and other places. And what that tells us, though, the horns upon this altar tell us that prayer is powerful. The Old Testament, you remember, tells that story about Elijah, how that Elijah prayed. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And so for three and a half years, the windows of heaven were shut up. It did not rain for a period of three and a half years. And then when Elijah prayed again, it did begin to rain. God opened up the heaven just like a fire hydrant had been turned on, and the rain came out. And that shows you how powerful that prayer is. Well, here we have a picture that the prayers of the saints of God are so powerful that they move God into action. Now, it's God's plan that prayer is a means of carrying out his will. You know, there's some people who ask, why pray? And we certainly do believe that God is in control of all things. God acts as he chooses to act. There's no one who can force God to do anything. The Bible tells us that God is unchangeable. And so people ask the question, does prayer really matter? God is unchangeable. Does prayer really change things? And they think, well, God's just going to do whatever God does, so there's no need for us to pray. I don't know all the answers to that. I just know this, that God told us to do it. God said to pray, and the prayers of the saints are a way that God uses to carry out his will. Now, I'll leave it to philosophers and theologians to figure all that out and to see how it works and see what happens when people don't pray and how God accomplishes what he wants to do without prayer. I don't know the answer to all that. Nobody does. But I do know this, God said do it. God said to pray. And when we pray, things change. At least from our perspective, things change because then we can see the revealed will of God. Now here we see God moving upon the prayers of these saints. These are those imprecatory prayers that we've talked about before. These are not ordinary prayers. I mean, these are not prayers of mercy. They're not prayers that God will save people on the earth. It's a much different prayer because this is a prayer of vengeance. This is a prayer that God's wrath will be poured out, that God will be avenged. This is a prayer that God's everlasting kingdom will come. Do you remember what Jesus prayed? We're going to be studying it a few weeks from now as we look into the Sermon on the Mount. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, is Matthew chapter 6 where we have the model prayer. And what was the very last thing that Jesus said in that prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When will God's will be done totally, completely on earth as it is in heaven? Do you know when that will be? It will be when the visible kingdom comes. That's why Jesus prayed for it. That's why he taught his disciples to pray for it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the perfect will of God will be done when all of God's enemies are subdued. Now, do you see the power of prayer? We've been praying for that for millennia. All the way back to the time of that Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, the disciples 
and all times have been praying for that. And God has not forgotten all of those prayers. The time is going to come. And all of the prayers of the saints are represented in this incense that burns, and that incense goes up before the throne of God. Now, finally, we want to remember what all of this is about. And what it's all about is that judgment is coming. Seven trumpets are sound, and then there's going to be judgment on the earth. Now, the fourth thing we want to look at is the savor of death. Verse number 5 says, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Now, here's that interesting twist to the altar. The altar of incense is usually regarded as a place of mercy. It's a place where prayers are offered for mercy, for the gracious acts of God towards his people. Prayers are made here to uh, consider the benevolence of God, to consider the praise of God, to praise him for all of his wonderful works, to praise God for his faithfulness when we are so unfaithful to him and yet God still takes care of us. In spite of our often failures, God still remains faithful to us. And so we look at this altar of incense, and that's normally what we think. Mercy, grace, a time that God takes care of all of our needs. But here, the altar changes from a place of positive intercession to a place of negative judgment. So the angel scoops up the coals of the fires off this altar into his censer, and the Bible says he flings those towards the earth. Why does he do that? Well, because, first of all, the rejection of Christ's commandments. John wrote, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. You know, there's a very uncomplicated conclusion to that statement. Those who do not keep Christ's commandments do not have Christ dwelling in them. That is going to become so clear as we go through the study of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who do not keep Christ's commandments do not have Christ dwelling in them. This is what Jesus said. He said, if you abide in me, I abide in you. And then he said that anyone who doesn't abide in me is cast forth as a branch, and men gather them and cast them into the fire. You know, I'm often asked this question. How do you know if a person is saved? How do you really tell if a person is saved? Well, the Bible only gives us one way to judge people as to their salvation— And I'll I'll remind you of that again, too. I mean, all this is coming up in the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about judging that seventh chapter, I believe, is in verse number one. Some of you might look it up and verify me on that. I think it's verse number one where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged. And so people say, well, that means we can't judge anything. You can't judge me. You can't say anything about what I do. Don't judge me. Well, you'll find out when we get to that verse that that's not what Jesus means. Certainly, we've been given the ability to judge in certain things. And one of those things that we can judge in is by the actions of people as to whether they're saved or not. Now, obviously, we can't tell a person's heart, and I can't tell you for sure without absolute, I mean, with absolute certainty that one person is saved and another is not. But the Bible has given us a, a means to judge whether people are the people of God. It's by the actions that they do. How do they live their lives? Do they follow the commandments of Christ? And so we'll see that. I mean, the Bible says that a person who doesn't keep Christ's commandments does not have Christ dwelling in them. So what we see here is people who haven't kept Christ's commandments, they haven't trusted him as their Savior. There there is no faith in him, and so they're not saved. 
And so anyone who doesn't abide in Christ will one day have to meet the consequence of that unbelief. Some people think it doesn't matter. They have the idea that everything's going to turn out all right in the end. Someone has said that's what you call a pantheologist. I mean, everything will work out in the end. I mean, everything's going to be okay. Well, everything is not going to be okay. Some people think, well, God loves everybody, and so therefore God is not going to send anybody to hell. He just loves everybody, so he can't send anybody to hell. Well, keep thinking that way. See where it gets you. That's your idea of God. It's not God's idea of God. Read the Scriptures. If you want to know what God says, if you want to know what God is, how God acts, what he does, read the Scriptures. That tells us who God is. It doesn't make any difference what your opinion is, what my opinion is, what, what I think that God ought to be or ought not to be. It doesn't matter. The Scriptures tell us who God is. That's the revelation of God. There is no other revelation of God. So if you think it doesn't matter, read the Scriptures. It does very much matter. So here we see these angels that fling out the coals of this fire because of the rejection of Christ's commandments. There are prayers of vengeance that have gone up, and God is going to answer those prayers. Now what happens then to those who reject Christ and the commandments? Well, there is the justice of God's judgment. God is a righteous judge. And what God never does, God never acts outside of his character. God does not change from what he has always been. God is a judge over good and evil. Now, God has promised from the very foundation of the world that what he would do is that he will judge good and evil. He's going to judge it all. And so those who have sinned, who have sinned in their heart, those who haven't repented of those sins, those who have transgressed God's law are going to be judged by that law. You know, it's a popular saying that people say, well, God does not hate sinners. We can argue that statement if we want. We can argue about whether or whether or not God hates sinners. And what they say, well, God doesn't hate sinners, God hates sin. And so we separate sin from the sinner. Well, here is one place where you cannot separate sin from the sinner. These are both one and the same. God's unmitigated wrath is poured out on these sinners because God hates them. Again, you say, well, preacher, that's not popular to say a thing like that. Read the Bible. I can't do anything but read what the Bible says. The censor contains God's wrath because God's grace has been rejected. Now, do you see a remarkable change here? Today, living in this world today, what do we do? We, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray There are prayers that go up, and those prayers are a savour of life for those who take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who believe it, they take it into their hearts, and they believe it to the saving of their souls. The Bible calls that a savour of life. But there are some who do not believe the message that we give, and so to them it becomes a savour of death. It's a death sentence to them. They've heard the gospel, and they do not believe it. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. I'll explain that in just a moment. Verse 16, To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Look at verse 15 one more time. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. We are a sweet savor to both. How? 
Well, we're a sweet savor to them that believe and are saved because they receive eternal life. But we are a sweet savor also to Christ in them that perish because God's justice is done. God's justice is done. God's always pleased with his justice. God never does anything wrong. He never does anything evil. And so even when God meets out his judgment and his justice upon sinners, that is a good thing for God's glory. All things are done for God's glory. So here, this sweet incense of life-giving prayers are now turned into the bitter coals of the judgment of death. Friends, the Bible says that judgment is coming. There's only one way that anyone will ever escape the savor of death, and that is by trusting Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Now, right now, God is saying, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's the message right now. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So that's why God sends out the gospel call. That's why God permits right now repentance and faith. It's why right now that God, a better way to put it, grants repentance and faith because that is a gift of God. It's part of the grace of God. For a person to repent and believe is a gracious act of God. We can't do it on our own. God must put that into our hearts so that we can do it. Right now, God permits repentance and faith. But that day is coming to a close. We don't know how long it's going to be. We just don't know. But one of these days, God is going to say, no more. No more. I'm done with it. Now you have to face my judgment. And I hope that there's no one here tonight that's going to face the wrath and the judgment of God. I would be sure you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ where rewards are given out and not at the great white throne judgment where the wicked will be cast into the fires of hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. No wonder there's silence in heaven to think about the awful judgment that's coming. God, whatever you do is righteous and it's just. Your judgments are always exactly what they should be. Lord, we are vile creatures, and all that we can do is plead for the mercy and grace of God. I ask you, Lord, you'd speak to someone here tonight who may not know you as Savior. May they realize time is running out. Can't leave this life without knowing Jesus Christ and expect that there's going to be any kind of a good outcome. There will not be, because that's what the Word of God very clearly tells us. So we ask you, Lord, to... Bless in this time of invitation. Speak to hearts and draw the saved closer to you. May we be a witness for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.